High. I'm Pete Fenzel here with Overthinking It TV Recaps. Really excited to be talking to everybody today about something near and dear to all of our hearts, which is the ingredients that go into kidney pie. That's right. We're talking about Season 4, Episode 7 of Game of Thrones, uh, titled Mockingbird. Uh, Mockingbird was, I think, a pretty solid episode, and I have a pretty solid panel to discuss it here today. Uh, welcome to our uh, viewers watching us live on Google Hangouts. Welcome to you if you downloaded this off the Overthinking TV Recaps podcast feed. Make sure you subscribe to get the last three episodes of this great season. And welcome to everybody watching us on YouTube. We really appreciate that you made us our your second screen for this uh, premiere entertainment event. Um, we usually start these recaps by asking about a moment in the show from each of the panelists that to them provides a doorway into interpretation for the major events of the plot and the other things that happen. But I feel like I have to start with a specific scene. Oh, and by the way, we are doing this live. So if you're watching live and you have questions for us, I'm on the Twitters. We're all on the Twitters. Tweet at us at Overthinking It, and we will answer your questions live. Make sure that somebody else – there's my phone. I'll be watching this as we go. But already on the Twitters today – there's been some discussion about what the moment that we're going to discuss is. So I wanted to throw this moment out to everybody to start the conversation today about Mockingbird. And that is when Hot Pie, who has returned to us. <laughs> yay! Yay! Hot Pie! Hot yay. Pie! <laughs> uh, Winterfell! Hot Pie! Um, and he, he uh, as, as apropos of nothing, or of everything, explains to Brienne of Tarth and Podrick Payne, uh, sexual tyrannosaur Podrick Payne, uh, the ingredients in kidney Pie, how it is hard to get the right ingredients for kidney pie, the importance of gravy in pie. Uh, and I'm just going to toss this out to the panel. You, you, you speak first, and I'll introduce you uh, after you, you make your initial case so that everybody knows who you are, how awesome you are, and what a special human being you are. Uh, but yeah, what do people think about the pie? What's in the pie? What's, it, what's in the pie? Listen, Pete, no gravy, no pie. All right, that's, that's, that's Ben Adams. <laughs> that you can't give up on the gravy. Right. That's, that's the, the key to the pie. Now, for you, was, was the gravy, uh, was that a, a weighty symbol for you for this episode or for the show in general? Did you connect with it or uh, not so much? Maybe that line twinged with me a little bit, just the idea that he's, I mean, he's the small folk. We don't hear much from the small folk in game of thrones and so to, to ha have him be relatively optimistic about the fact that like yeah sure most of the country is on fire and or being pillaged like at this minute but you know what he's gonna find some gravy so i, I kind of like that i don't really know how that gives an entree into the rest of the episode i actually felt that that scene this scene was a little kind of detached and kind of its own little world from the rest of the episode uh, but i did like that one line Okay. Well, before we move on, Ben, is there another scene? We'll talk about the pie, but is right. there another scene you want to put in the pot as the scene you'd like to start your conversation with so we can come back to it later? Sure. I, well, I think th since this is the Downton Abbey scene, I think I have to go to the scene where there's someone lingering just out of frame and overhears the whole conversation. <laughs> so this is the end, the the, the snowcastle scene where Liza mm -hmm. is, is peering around the corner as we find out at the end of the scene because that's a, a Downton Abbey staple. But uh, particularly the line, uh, the, the two lines, that knocking things down isn't fixing them. And then uh, uh, Robin's insistence that was it was already ruined because it didn't have a moon door. And I think this is a debate that we actually hear other characters have about the difference between kind of destruction and creative destruction and whether or not, you know, that destruction is justified because the, you know, the society we're building doesn't doesn't have what we want in it. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. So, but others can talk about about pie before we talk about snow castles. I, I got a hankering. I got a hankering, and then the only thing that's going to satisfy it is some kidney pie discourse. So, who wants to get on board with kidney? Who wants to get on the train to kidney pie town? I guess more of an ox cart in the level of technology we're dealing with in Game of Thrones. Anybody? Am I am I going to eat this kidney pie all by myself? Or, or wouldn't it be? Wouldn't there be like a? Uh, uh industrial revolution aren't we ripe for that and so the railroad is going to d drive right from king's landing all the way up to castle black and uh you know i don't know make walder Frey and the twins irrelevant well matt rather ladies and gentlemen uh pitching us a blazing saddles game of thrones crossover where evil <laughs> robber barons with uh, public uh, subsidy crisscross the country uh, enacting their own private justice and and Padraig Payne comes and says excuse me while i whip this out 
<laughs> gets a uh, proclamation or something like that. Um, I Listen, I thought that, that it was a great Downton Abbey scene, but it was the wrong Downton Abbey scene for this episode. I... Uh, I was talking on Twitter uh, today with uh, Ben Snickoff, who has been on the Overthinking It podcast as a guest uh, on Twitter. He is Snitty, if you want to look up the correspondence between him and me. Um, and he he uh, tweeted at Overthinking It and at Fenzel and said, so, Downton Abbey scene, hot, hot pie, right? And I, I wrote back and said, it would be, except I felt like this, um, the, the, read, the read that I have for that speech is it's about sort of, it's about plans, uh, and and it's about sort of understanding understanding that there are uh, things that that there are things that you should value that are not uh, that don't necessarily seem like the main event, but that are actually more uh, that determine success more than uh, a lot of the bigger ticket items uh, seem to determine success. But this isn't this wasn't a um, a Downton Abbey. Uh, <laughs> this wasn't a Downton Abbey scene for this episode because there, to me there are two kinds of games of throne Game of Thrones episodes. Um, those uh those episodes that fall neatly into one of two kinds and those that don't. No, uh, there are two kinds of da- Game of Thrones episodes. There are those that uh are about the question, um, who am I? And then there are those that are about the question, what should I do? How should I act? Right. And uh, so they are the uh, they're the identity episodes and the strategy episodes, more or less. And this one I, and maybe there's another another uh, another subset, which is kind of what kind of world? What is the world like, really? Right. Um, though that's entailed by both of by both of these things. To me, this was a who am I episode. And I have I mean, I have a, a sort of a sketch of what I think the theme um, what I think the theme uh, of the episode was and it it didn't have to do with what what hot pie was was talking about right this was to me an identity episode and not a not a making a pie not a making a plans episode cool all right well that's matt rather's take on the pie uh backpedaling furiously from his tweeting that it was the apropos uh the appropriate scene earlier today no no it's 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 uh it's all well and good there's plenty of pie to go around shana malowski you're the last one left in our illustrious panel so i will introduce you before uh before i force you to say anything uh because Hi. you deserve that honor hey how's it going <laughs> thanks <Pete>. um <laughs> well uh i've been told by the twitter nation that I am, of course, the one who has to make everything into some sort of penis joke. So I'm going to say the gravy is semen. (laughs) Well, no, that's not actually what I'm going to say. No, Um, I'm actually with Matt on this one um, and want to think that this scene is about um, value and specifically not necessarily valuing money, but to value things like the gravy that really makes life worth living. But I want to connect that to what I think the real Downton Abbey scene is, which is the one um, that I don't believe was in the books with that guy who's just sitting on the road dying and um, sitting there and having a long conversation um, that outline as you do. Um, and <laughs> the line that I was really thinking of, um, which was sort of linked to what we were talking about, I think it was last week about the bankers and value and so forth, where he says that it used to, um, life used to be about the notion of fair exchange, but nowadays there's no balance anymore. And that's what he thinks is the main problem with Westeros these days. And that conversation was all full of like this weird arithmetic that had to do with mortality. Um, For example, he was saying that life greater than pain, um, which is why he wants to keep living. But Arya was like, no, death is better than pain. It has a higher value. You should die. And then he's like, nah, I'm good. And then she says, but death equals nothing and nothing is nothing. And that's fine because it's just Nothing. So we have all these conversations about what is worth more than what. Um, Of course, Arian, uh, the hound, or the hound specifically, has a uh, price on his head. And I guess she has a price on her head, too, even though everyone thinks uh, she is dead. But anyway, so there are things uh, that are worth lots of money, like people's lives. Um, But then there are things that are worth more than money, perhaps, or things that are... (laughs) 
I don't know. I think this conversation is worth talking about throughout the whole episode, but I'm going to stop talking now so someone else can jump in and talk about that or semen. <laughs> well, I'll talk about the pie and how I saw the pie and how it connects to what you guys have all said, and we'll kick it around again. Um, so one thing you said, Shana, and this was what I was going to say about it, is that the pie scene is related to the idea of what makes life worth living. And it's not just hot pie talking about the pie. It's also Brienne talking about how we, how excited she is to have comfort after she has been sleeping in ditches for weeks. And this tension in Brienne between the ascetic side where it's like, don't get drunk. And then Padraig Payne looks really sad because he wanted to get drunk. It's been a couple weeks that he's had any fun and he was hoping to get drunk. Right. And it's, it's a whole, like there'll still be cakes and ale kind of situation where no matter how, highfalutin the issues are of the day, no matter how pressing the issues of global or personal destruction might loom, um, people still enjoy things like food and sex, which is, and they enjoy them for their own sake. Um, and, uh, and it's part of what makes their lives worth living. That's what's part of what makes it worth fighting for, right, is the idea that you can have pie. Right. Or you can, you know, you can have sex. This is one of the reasons why I feel like this. While a lot of the sex scenes in Game of Thrones have been the TV show have been gratuitous. The presence of sex scenes in Game of Thrones is not gratuitous because it's about how it's not just about people machination, doing machinations against each other just for the sake of machinations. It's about the pleasure and the sensory enjoyment that people get to participate in, provided that they are alive and have the money and means to do so. And so then the question is, well, what is the gravy, right? If the gravy is the thing that if it's not a pie without gravy, then the gravy is a loaded symbol, which I think, and I think that you can look through this episode and you can point out a whole bunch of different gravies, wherein without the gravy, the pie isn't a pie, right? And so, I mean, one that jumps right to mind is Dario Naharis, right? Who says, well, I could stay here and I could, you know, patrol the streets because I promised to, but for me, you know, my life isn't worth living. My, my pie isn't a pie unless there's, well, pie, but unless, which is awful. No, unless there's women or murdering people, like it's going out and fighting. And those are those, that's my gravy, right? Like the Night's Watch scene, right? It's like, oh, well, we could seal up the the gate, and it would make it easier to defend the wall against a manse, but then we wouldn't be the Night's Watch anymore. And for them, being able to range north of the wall is their gravy. Without that, the pie isn't a pie, right? Um, you know, you've got uh, the, the conflict between Sansa and Robert Aaron, where Sansa builds this home in the snow because for her, she needs to have a home. She needs to have this idea of Winterfell. She needs to, She can be in a castle, but it should also be the castle that is her home for her, that matters to her. And without that, there's something that's incomplete. And for Rob, Robin Aaron, for Sweet Robin, right, uh, a castle isn't a castle unless it has, like, a theatrical way of executing people through gravity, right? It's like you have to have a hole to shove people out of. And it's like, wow, this kid's really maladjusted. But that's his gravy, right? That's his gravy is that that's what it, it was necessary for him to be powerful, and that's how he sees relationships and all that other stuff. Um, and just to sort of close out the, the gravy talk, oh, there's a bunch of other examples, too, is that there's a great view reversal in the sh- in the episode where there's the overlying question of is does anybody really want Tyrion to not die and like how badly right like is Tyrion's life worth anything is there any gravy in Tyrion right is there anything that makes his life worth living is there anything in, in for me that makes my life worth living that would then i can weigh against that and say well okay i'd rather stay alive so i'm not going to put my life on the line for Tyrion Right. And it's this this battling of people's gravies against each other. And then you get to this final reversal where you realize that Tyrion's gravy is the thing that makes Tyrion's life worth living. Right. The thing that sort of defines Tyrion's life as distinct from other lives isn't like the pleasures and the good things and the and the and the and the 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 other sorts of things, the, the sensory enjoyments that Tyrion always talks about or how smart he is or that he defended the city. The thing that makes Tyrion's self-worth being Tyrion is in the eyes of everyone else is that he's this monster, right? So you have this speech by Oberyn Martell where he talks about how excited he was to see Tyrion the monster and how he was disappointed when Tyrion wasn't a monster because without the hooves or the horns or the tail or what have you, a monster is not a monster. It's just a baby, right? So without the gravy, it's not a pie, right? So everybody wants Tyrion to be this monster that they can all kill. And the reason that Oberyn Martell is willing to step forward for him, yes, he wants justice against the mountain, but it's also because he doesn't see Tyrion as having the essential quality that everybody else sees Tyrion as having. 
So that's my speech about the gravy across the course of this episode and the many things that it symbolizes. Um, and so we can move on to other other Downton Abbey scenes as people see fit. I mean, I'm curious <laughs> about some of the I things. Well, go ahead. Gravy. <laughs> well, no, no but I mean, I think it fits. Yeah. Sorry, especially that scene, because um, Oberyn's gravy, we would have thought, would be having orgies in the whorehouse, right? Um, but in this case, as you just said, it's not... I mean, he said in previous episodes that that is what makes his life worth living, willing to die for something else, which is fascinating to me. And also um, interesting is uh, that scene with Bronn where he was talking about how he wasn't going to fight for Tyrion. And uh, just to connect it to my previous Downton Abbey scene so it doesn't, you know, just go to the wayside, um, is that um, his... Over time, in the past, it, it, he just wanted money—money money from Tyrion specifically. He fought for Tyrion before, but now he has money, and now the money isn't gravy anymore. The money is like the kidney pie. It's just like you know what he you know needs to survive. It isn't like the great stuff. What he wants is a castle. Um, and so he's going to marry this woman who's kind of dim-witted and possibly kill her sister, uh, trading her life for a castle. Um, and at this point, he doesn't want to trade his life for just gold. Um, so it's just a, a fascinating situation how value is shifting over time. It's not steady. Um, there isn't just like a balance. There what what is uh, called fair exchange was once one thing and now it's another. Um, so I think that's fascinating and we can move on to something else, but I wanted to gravy I'll, I'll... it for a little, go on the gravy train. <laughs> I'll tack on one scene as the the scene with Danny and uh, it's a me Dario <laughs> in uh, Marine um, because this is kind of the first time we've seen Danny do something that isn't kind of strictly limited to or at least the first time in a while that we've seen Danny do something that isn't strictly limited to kind of her mission of liberating the slaves, conquering Westeros. Um, where she, as Liz Lemon would say, she took her reward <laughs> with uh, with Dario, um, and so that for Danny is finally her taking like some sort of like pleasure in ruling <laughs> instead of just like purely going after this uh, this kind of messianic quest she's been on. I mean, do you feel similarly about Danny's uh, strike back at the Yunkish? Um, as something that she did out of out of pleasure, I'm I'm legit curious. I, I tend to think of it that way, but I'm. I'm I think it's interesting that. because it, it's hard to tell to what extent she actually changed her mind and how much of it was like kind of a leader playing her lieutenants off each other there. Um, but I think honestly, Jorah did kind of change her mind about what to do with the Yunkai, and, and I think she kind of realized that that going too far in one direction um, would be a mistake. And that, that actually kind of links up with that thing about um, whether or not, um, you know, if you, uh, um, sorry, I'm looking for the quote here, uh, what Sansa and Robin were talking about, about creative destruction, about whether or not you can rule and destroy at the same time. Because at first, for Danny, she can't rule the Yunkai with the masters in place. Like, it all has to be knocked down because there's no moon door down there. Or because there's this problem in society. And I think Jorah convinces her that's not the way to rule a kingdom. Um, but I found that interesting because this is this weird kind of power dynamic where she's keeping her different lieutenants in their different positions and kind of playing them off each other. Hmm. Cool, cool. So, Matt, um, you've mentioned that you have some uh, um, th uh, other thematic considerations. Obviously, it's not just a... It's not a one-dimensional episode. It, it comes at things from a bunch of different air angles, and I'm always curious because often when I when one of the reasons why I was sort of getting the pie stuff done first is I felt like if other people made a plausible case for what the episode was about, I would feel silly talking about the pie anymore because it would obviously be about the thing that people were saying it was about, as as it so often is obviously about the thing that you think that it is about. Um, but yeah, could you pepper in some of your your over your view of of how you oh, you'd like, you like, you'd like me to season your kidney pie with a Please little do. Bit of, uh... It's not a pie without gravy, but it's not a rather pie without seasoning. And I'm <laughs> talking about the thing Shana was talking about earlier. No, never mind. Go ahead. Um, so the uh, – <laughs> well, all of overthinking it is that for all of us, isn't it? Uh, the um, – so, I, I mean, it, it struck me how many times in this episode you had two characters coming uh, coming in kind of face-to-face. -face. 
uh, with one another. And and the there was a question about how much are we actually like each other, right? How much are we sort of related to each other? Uh, Jamie uh, Jamie and Tyrion at the beginning, um, a, a lot of a lot of uh, references to brothers, the brothers of the Night's Watch, brothers owing brothers loyalty. Um, but also even uh, Melisandra and uh, uh, Celsa, Celise, right? Celise, um, right in the uh, in in the least sexy bathtub scene ever, right? <laughs> and and by the way, Melisandra's gravy is getting is like the the bath oils, you know, that's what, <laughs> right? That's what she that's what she likes because she spends so much time with the fire. She likes a little water with some nice uh, nice smelling bath oil in it. Um, Coming, coming, both as sort of uh, as having been uh, lovers of Stannis, right? Like, and and sort of looking at at one another, and sort of seeing seeing the way that they're alike, and and seeing um, seeing the way that they're different, and and a lot of the time uh, they they are sort of failed. There's kind of a failed mirror. Uh, one is sort of the bad member, and one is the good member of the dyad, and you see this especially in. Uh, in Lisa Aaron uh, getting pushed through Chekhov's moon door, right? And the, uh, the the she's the bad sister. She's the one who thought she was like Cat, right? She thought she was a mirror of Catelyn, but in fact she wasn't. She was she was sort of a a substitute or a stand-in. Um, the same thing happens in the in the uh, the Night's Watch scene uh, when. Um, when what's his name, Brother McAsshole, who uh, is running the Night's Watch now, turns and and looks at the First Builder and says, "Well, what say you, First Builder? Should we seal up the tunnel?" And everyone looks at him, and it's clearly uh, he clearly is going to say yes because that is by far the smartest course of action at this point. And uh, and he and and uh, Brother McAsholston. Um, it starts to look worried, but then he says no, right? And so he he is sort of the false brother, right? He's he's sort of casting his lot in with with the uh, uh, with the wrong, you know, with the wrong brother. And then also, I mean, sort of sort of doubling like like the hound uh, killing the guy, and then Arya killing the guy for vengeance. The hound killing the guy for mercy, and Arya killing killing Rorge for for vengeance. Um, uh the the uh uh the Tyrion Braun scene um oh uh, another interesting one for me was uh Jorah Mormont and Dario Naharis uh as as sort of rivals kind of the kind of the inverse of of uh of Stannis's two ladies you have Daenerys's uh two men who are sort of rivals um for her affection and for her kind of warmth and and approval right so this this to me was what this to me was an episode about sort of coming coming to terms with um coming to terms with which one you are right coming to terms with which of the two uh you are and like uh what which brother is Tyrion, right um and it's not a it's not a super easy or super schematic uh division i mean one of the strengths of of george r. r martin generally is that he sort of sets these things up and then cuts their hand off uh but the um the uh the division i think is i i still think it's there it's operating this idea of doppelganger of counterpart of mirror rival uh brother sister um and and coming to terms with those relationships and kind of working through where you stand in those relationships seem to me to be the the theme of this episode yeah it, it seems like that intersects with the, the title of the episode pretty cleanly Mockingbird, right? Because right. if you have one person who sort of, uh, if there's one person who sort of ends up on the better end of things, and one person who ends up on the worse end of things, um, right? And then there's there's an I, mimicry or there's a copying that happens, right? And then there's someone who's left sort of wondering why they weren't the one and why it was this other person instead. If that's kind of a theme that keeps happening over and over in the episode with this sort of where everybody's making Jorah Mormon eyes like, oh, oh, you know, like, oh, no, everybody's feeling that way. Like, Selyse is feeling that way. The builder Kali. is also like, oh, no. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and of course, the the Mockingbird, uh, for those I'm not familiar, is the is the sigil of 
Peter Baelish, Peter Bader Baelish's personal sigil. He wears a pin on his neck with the mockingbird on it in this uh, in this very episode to symbolize it. And the the lore, the background lore is that his family is actually from Bravos, which is where Stannis went to go uh, take out a business loan last week. And uh, which because Stannis <laughs> is all party all the time, let me tell you. Um, but uh, as we could tell from the bath scene this week, um, it's like, sorry, Melisandre, I got to go talk to a guy about some credit. Um, but yeah, but, uh, but he's from Bravos, and his family crest was the Titan of Bravos, the head of the Titan of Bravos. Uh, but he replaced it with a mockingbird because he wanted to have his own sigil. He wanted to make his own way. Perhaps he wanted to obfuscate his origins or where he was from, remake them, take on somebody else's role. Right. Um, also he was in the hunger games. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Well, you, I mean, we could talk about that. Like what's the, <laughs> what does the Mockingjay and the Mockingbird have to do with each other? Right, um, uh, but maybe that's something. What's about the climb? I don't know. <laughs> well, I, w- I would say I would say that it's about like the the replacing something with something else that ends up imitating it. But we we have to talk about that after everybody watches Mockingjay because we don't want to put Hunger Games spoilers uh, in this episode. Um, but maybe we'll have a special Hunger Games Game of Thrones crossover series that will also involve Onslaught from the X-Men just because I love crossovers so much. Hot Pie and PETA could hang out and bake bread together. <laughs> yes, yes, perfect. <laughs> Someone write that webcomic. Um, so, so to go back to the, but to go back to the bath scene, because I feel like the bath scene in particular, uh, deserves a lot of, of mention. I mean, it might have been, definitely might have been the Downton Abbey moment of the episode. The, the idea of, um, Melisandre tricking people with special effects to get them to believe in the thing that she thinks is right. Right? Like, that's, that's something that's introduced. It's like she introduces this, this idea of, uh, and how exactly does she frame it? Uh, tricks lead them to the truth. Tricks that, lead, that led them to the truth by, by saying, oh, okay, I can make a plume of flame appear in the sky, and then everyone's going to follow me, and then they're never going to really care that the plume wasn't real and that it was something that was made up. Um, and, uh, and that was, it. that was interesting. Um, I felt like that was an interesting juxtaposition with her talking about the hot, the joke about the hot bath, which is that she stared into the fires and Rolor, the Lord, right. Told her that this was going to be her last good bath for a while. So she should make the best of it. And then she's like, that was a joke, right? <laughs> Cause it's <laughs> like, maybe it wasn't a joke, but, but this is the idea that, that Melisandre is a zealot. And so she, so if Brienne is sort of like, 90 10 or 80 20 like like work comfort right it's like well you know we'll have a pie and we'll sleep in a bed but you better not get drunk like we have a job to do right and then um and then Tyrion is like pretty far on the other end most of the time but has kind of been at a, a battle of these things and and so on and so forth uh, and Dario Naharis is like I want to do the thing that I want to do like come on um then, like, Melisandre is, sees herself as totally on the other side, where she is a zealot who is committed to her cause and will sacrifice everything that is necessary, uh, including the implied sacrifice of Shireen, I believe, in this episode, where they seem to be talking about murdering her, uh, it seems. I don't know if you guys felt that when you were watching it. But, oh, definitely. Um, oh, so, yeah. Though it's one of those, it's one of those, like, I was speaking of the temple of my body. You know, it's one of those little trickster religious trickster moves right like that uh uh that she's pulling here i'm sure we're yeah. like oh no in fact we don't have to we just have to put leeches on her <laughs> but it's the idea is, is is that like she's a mockingbird in the sense that you know she's she's an imitation of she has a sort of imitative relationship with the identity that other people see that she has, right? She's like, okay, I understand how other people want to see this fire priestess and what they expect to see from her, and I'm going to provide them with those things, even though that's not who I am, right? I'm going to create this identity for them that they will then appreciate, and then I will then use them to get to the truth that I want them to engage in. It's an interesting juxtaposition of truth and lies is coming out of her mouth, right? It's like, um, you know, it's the idea that a bunch of lies can lead you to the truth is, is not unproblematic. Um, and also not unproblematic is the long lingering gaze up and down Melisandre's body by Selyse as she sort of as Selyse is talking as Shireen, as Melisandre is talking about her high minded ideas about her strategies about how everything is necessary and Selyse sort of very intuitively understands that there's something a lot more basic that's happening here and she's sort of like aren't you just banging my husband like aren't <laughs> you just a little bit like aren't you just 
there's part of me that just can't shake it that, you know, and you're just, you're here and you're naked and it's kind of suggestive. And I just feel like you're kind of throwing it in my face and I don't really appreciate it. Right. I feel like that's kind of like, um, part of what's going on. I mean, I don't know. Any other Sorry. thoughts about the bath scene? Oh, go ahead, Ben. I think that fits in. Cause what Melisandre excels at is bending everything into this worldview of the Lord of light. Like even her bath is about her religious mission of the Lord of light. Like most people don't say, like, even if you're very religious, you don't say that, like, I went to the post office today in service of my Lord and savior. No, it's like, you just went to the post office, but for Melisandre, like everything can be bent into this religious mission up to and including having sex with uh, um, Stannis. Like even that is part of, you know, this broader religious mission. She can justify anything by her religious surface. Like the night is dark and full of boners. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I had to laugh because this scene was a meet the, the scene where you saw like the slightest bit of male nudity was immediately followed by a massive amount of female nudity, which is like the Game of Thrones, like equilibrium balance. Like you can never have the male nudity exceed the female nudity. <laughs> well, the bal- there used to be balance in Westeros, but now there's no balance. There's no fair exchange anymore. Right. I mean, <laughs> do whenever you hear language like that, Shana, do you, does it make you think of Full Metal Alchemist as much as it makes me think of Full Metal Alchemist? Or is- oh, I didn't think of that, but yeah, that's exactly... Exactly right, and uh, uh, maybe that's how Jamie lost his hand. Is <laughs> oh, there's there's a five percenter joke, but yeah, it's um, is it a fair exchange to sacrifice the lives of people, you know, to burn people alive and whatnot to get right. things that you want from from the gods? That's well, the- and, and she makes clear, no act done in the service of the Lord can ever be a sin. This is this, that's a line she. I think I can't remember if it's her or. Um, you know, Mrs. Stannis, Solis, yeah, Mrs. I think Solis is that. But it's clear they both they, they both they both agree with this idea that their religious mission is so pure that the means literally do not matter at all. It's it's only about the end here, which is obviously a, a recipe for all sorts of disaster. Mm-hmm. But what, what do you make um, of the contrast uh, um, between the bath scene where Melisandre is talking about the importance of artifice and lies um, with the scene with the uh, kidney pie um, where um, Brienne and Podrick are talking and they um, directly afterwards uh, Pod says to Brienne you shouldn't have told the truth about Sansa because people um, would want to kill her for money and this is not going to end well but then it actually does end well because they find out about Arya from uh, Hot Pie right so in this case the truth uh, wins out the truth is the best you know um, Brienne is also sort of a mockingbird in that she's wearing Jamie's armor and whatever um, and Popeye does bring that up, uh, saying that Arya was also pretending to be a boy. Okay, but um, obviously Brienne and Melisandre are direct opposites in terms of their commitment to the truth. So uh, do you guys have any thoughts about that? Um, I think it's interesting because I think it... um it problematizes this idea of having something that you care about, that you live for, and also it problematizes just identity in general, right? If Matt is saying that there are identity episodes of Game of Thrones and then there are uh, sort of action-oriented episodes of Game of Thrones, this is an identity-oriented episode. Um, I, if somebody is giving... People have a hunger to establish a sense of identity, right? Like, And, and this is sort of one of the things that oaths and duties are related to uh, that helps you be the person that you are and define the person that you are. So going through truth and and relying on truth is one way that you can achieve this thing, but you can also do it by lying. And I think it breaks down the dichotomy of it a little bit. It breaks down the opposition of truth and lies if they're both used in the service of kind of like self-construction and construction of the other. It's basically, I think it's it's to give us, because I think, I think that the whole series has a difficult relationship with truth and lies. Not, I mean, and in the books, it's even more so because it's all, it's like 30 different unreliable narrators are all telling you what's happening, <laughs> right? And nobody even knows, right? Like the, the most important plot points in the story, we still have, we don't even know what the freaking series is about yet. And it's been going on for 20, 30, almost 30 years now. Um, almost 20 years now, sorry, 1996, right? So that's, uh, it's not quite that long. So it's almost 20 years. Um, so there's a lot of like incomplete information and lies and unreliable things, but they still serve the purpose of truths in certain ways. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting. And I don't think that Brian and Melisandre are all that different in certain ways, but you're right in that they have very different ideas of like the categorical imperative in terms of like using people <laughs> as means or uh, doing something out of means, means to an end versus out of duty. Um, and Matt, why don't, why don't you, uh, I, w- I want to get you in the conversation uh, on this stuff. I, I feel like it's your turn. Um, can I jump to a di- can I jump to a different scene and maybe talk? Yes, about that's it? what I mean. We need to modulate something else, and you are just the man to do it. Great. Um, so. I I thought there was something very sweet uh, about the the scene of both the the hound and Arya kind of hovering over the guy, um, hovering over the guy who who is dying. Right. And like it's it's tempered by the fact that it's the idea is sort of sinister that they're going to kill him. Right. Like that. This is that this is the idea. He's too far gone, though. I suppose it is merciful, you know, to end his suffering because there's nothing, you know, there is no like dignified death left for him. Right. This is the best of a, of a number of bad options. Um, but the 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 uh, just the sort of sense of kind of of I don't know taking time out and not not killing him right away right not like doing the strictly utilitarian move where you uh, where you just uh, where you just stab the guy because he's in your way um, and uh, I don't know letting him like uh, letting him talk and then you know later on when when Arya is um, is. Uh, uh, sewing up the uh, is sewing up the biter's wound. There's something really uh, there's something really very soul soulful, right? In um, in the hound's eyes, uh, he um, he. And I don't know. I think there's something. Uh, Rory McCann is the actor's name. I, I wrote it down. I was just checking in my notes. Uh, gives good like uh, gives good like soulful glances into the middle distance. You mean right? puppy dog eyes, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, in, in a non-romantic way, though, in the most in the most sort of grizzled and world weary uh, uh, sense of of soulful. Soulful eyes. Um, it's a very true grit feel to it. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, b- by the way, Gregor Sandor is another one of these sort of good brother, bad brother dichotomies, right? Another another one of these kind of dark mirrors, um, you know, in which in which two two characters are sort of reflected, uh, sort of reflected off of off of one another, right? And um, I, it's it's interesting, right? Like because they both are associated with guts in this episode, right? The hound sort of sticking his uh, sticking his knife up to uh, stab the guy in the heart to so that he will die instantly, and uh, the mountain eviscerating people. Uh, and Cersei stepping over the chitlins as she, uh, you know, as she walks to, um, as she walks to uh, ask him who, if he's going to kill, and he says, "Who am I going to kill?" And she says, "Doesn't matter, right?" Those two are actually an interesting, an interesting kind of dark mirror of, uh, of, of one another. I think the, um, the contrast being hard and soft power, uh, but a similar kind of ruthlessness, right? Um, but uh, but yeah, I don't know this this scene of of sort of talking talking about the guy and are you saying nothing is nothing it it not, the nothingness nothings it knots right <laughs> uh, rather than rather than being like well nothing is a state um, it's the absence of state it's the it's the non state it's it's not doing as you understand doing it's the absence of of. Uh, of doing and and yet there was something sort of sweet in the way they they tended to tended to him sort of in his last moments and and talked to him sympathetically uh yes and speaking of not doing things and and these dichotomies and darkness and and things that have kind of a sweet moment and what'd you think about the the scene where brienne and podrick reach the fork in the road and decide to go to the right because it feels and, like and, it has a lot sorry, to do. Sorry, they could not travel both and be two travelers. Long they stood and looked down one as far as they could to where it ended in death. <laughs> Valor Morgulis. <laughs> I took the road less murdered. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 let's say that. What does it say about? Um, what does it say about adventure? Right, because it feels like to me in the show, and we, we mentioned, I think we mentioned this a week or two ago, that Brienne and Podrick are really, really firmly being rooted in 
post-Knight Errant fiction, specifically that Podrick is being shot as if he were Sancho Panza, Sancho right. Panza and, and that Brienne is being shot as if he's Don Quixote. He can't but, get the horse to go straight, right? He's, you know, and he's kind of a figure of fun. He's never done it. He's never cooked a rabbit before, you know, all, yeah, all this stuff, making him, making the squire a uh, making the squire a figure of fun. Yeah. Right, right. And this idea that it's like, oh, you're not a knight? Knights wear armor, right? And it's like, well, what are the things the knights actually do? Perhaps they go on quests to rescue fair maidens with, you know, squires in tow and all this other stuff. So, like, so Brienne and Podrick have this relationship with knight errantry in uh, the way, in particular, they're being portrayed in the show. And this moment where they confront the two roads in the woods and they pick one road. I mean, it's so on the nose, Right. I mean, it's it's very, very meta. Uh, I mean, if, if there if the episode has a bunch of different sorts of dichotomies where like one is sort of the dark and one is the sort of lighter or, you know, one is the sort of like you get to do this. This person gets to do it. This person doesn't get to do it. Um, well, I mean, the the process of being in a relationship where one person uh, gets primacy over the other. Um, is sort of like uh, something taking one road rather than the other, sort of, right? But I don't know, I just feel like there's something being said here about adventure in this episode that we watch Brienne and Podrick like pick a road and go down it. Right. Sure. On, um, on the on the the slimmest of pretexts, right? Because it's you know, uh, well, let's go to the Erie because maybe they'd go to a relative, you know. Uh, maybe that's what's going on. And I, I forget where we left, um, where we left hot pie. Did hot pie leave at the same time as Gendry or is, is Gendry, um, uh, in a different place. Did did we leave him off in a different place from Hot Pie? Well, that was interesting because hot pie said there was a guy who had a bad look on his face, right? He had an ugly mug or whatever. And he left uh -huh. with Arya. And I thought that that was Gendry. I don't think that was the Hound because the Battle of the Blackwater hadn't even happened yet, right? Um, I thought that I thought that Hot Pie and Gendry and Arya all split up at the same time, right? They all yeah. escaped from uh from Harrenhal together, right? Right. Well, yeah. yeah, but then but then I thought they were like they were traveling together, and then, uh, you know, and then Gendry said, and Hot Pie also said, yeah, that's it, I'm done. Right. I'm I'm not uh, I'm not going with you anymore. And Arya was Arya was like, well, we have to. Uh, we, you know, we have to, we have to continue on. But, but and anyway, I mean, I think oh, maybe, Arya... yeah, maybe he was talking about Jack and Hagar. That's probably who he was talking about. Oh, I so, see. Okay. I, I think he's, because I think they were all captured by the Brotherhood without banners. Um, and they all saw the Hound. And then when they were released by the Brotherhood, Arya oh. went off with the Hound and Hot Pie went off to, to go Big Bread. I got you. So Pot Pie, that's okay. So it's after... Uh, the the hound fights Beric and Darian in the trial by combat. Right. That hot pie leaves them. Okay, that was what I was missing. I thought it was before that. Okay, cool. Oh, so so sense. where I mean, figuring out where because what had been the plan, uh, Brienne's plan before this was she going north to River Run to to check in there, like or was she trying to travel to the north? It wasn't clear to me what they had done before they turned to the Erie. So it's like, well, we may as well go to the Erie. Well, know? they were going to go to Castle Black, right? Oh, to see John. So, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were going to... They, gonna, they the were... girls would try to go to Castle Black. Because John's their brother. But uh, Lisa Aaron Lisa Aaron is, is closer. Um, and has money. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I love that. Uh, did you catch Hot Pie calling it Winter Hell? That was that was pretty good. Shayna, we're tossing it to you because you've been quiet for a while. What, what we've, there's a bunch in the episode we haven't addressed yet. Pick a topic and let's run with it. Well, when you were talking about um, sort of adventuring, I was thinking about how um, in the past we were talking about uh, the construction of story and um, how many stories were being told this week, whether they were about adventuring or just a uh, backstory. Uh, um, whether it was uh, the story of Tyrion and Cersei when uh, he was a baby and she was 
changing him, uh, which sounds painful. And he was supposed to be a monster. So it, it was like a monster story that was subverted. Um, and then you have uh, this story that's unfinished of uh, Oberyn's uh, sister and uh, her kids being killed by the mountain. And so that's the beginning. And uh, this is the middle of the story where he's going to fight the mountain. And we're going to see the end next week and see if it is subverted or fulfilled. So um, I guess what I wanted to say was that um, George R. R. Martin seems to always sort of beginning adventure does of evil ages or more recent fantasy stories like lord of the rings whatever um but then they sort of go off on different roads um so to speak and so i just think it's a very interesting way it's not like he just subverts things for the sake of subverting them and he doesn't just subvert them from the very beginning it's like he starts the story he tells the middle of the story and then all of a sudden he's like nah let's do something else um so I don't know what you guys are telling in this episode and whether it relates to other episodes um, when we're talking about that sort of construction, but I'm going to pass it back to you guys. Pass. I mean, the most obvious connection, I think, is to Varys and his sort of statement of purpose for the whole series where he talks about the riddle of the sellsword. And where does power reside? And this, we, of course, when we talk about discourse, you know, that's what we're talking about is the discourses of power and influence and the stories that people tell each other in order to shape the world, their perception of the world and affect each other's behavior. So, you know, stories and narrativizations are a necessary part of politics of all kinds. Uh, well, not necessary, but present, because, I mean, whatever. It, if they weren't there, it would still be called politics. We don't have to conceive of a of a thought experiment where, well, what would it be like if there were politics with no stories? Like, well, there would be levers that people would pull. Um, but no, 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 that's, that's not what I mean. Um, but yeah, it seems to hook into some pretty large themes for the series in general. Um, I mean, why we're reading the story, right? Like, the argument being made for why we should read this story is in turn being made in other ways by other characters within the story who are saying that you should read their stories. And of course, in the book, we have the additional meta story where there is a Song of Ice and Fire, right? This book series is called The Song of Ice and Fire. There is a Song of Ice and Fire that is mentioned in the book series in like a, you know, a hallucination Danny vision scene of Rhaegar and whatnot. But there's an idea that there is the story of the story that you're reading that's going to exist at some point diegetically in the universe that we're watching. And part of what's happening is trying to figure out which of the many, many stories that are happening is like the real story or any of them the real story. Um, Right. I mean, that's that, it's interesting. Adjudicating and, pr- and prioritizing these different stories is, is a tricky thing to do. What do you guys think? Oh, sorry, I've, Matt, go on. Oh, it's, I, I has, go I have, this is almost kind of a stray thought, but it's something I want to kind of plant a flag in because it's something I've been kind of tracking in the TV series. It's different from the book. And it actually kind of relates to the Song of Ice and Fire, because for me, the Song of Ice and Fire is always about... These two, you know, if Westeros is the Titanic, there are these two icebergs like looming in the future, which is in the north, you have the White Walkers, and in the east, you have Danny and her dragons. And like that's the ice and the fire that's coming to Westeros at some point down the road in the series. And one thing is that the TV show, I feel like, is done a little more than the book is the characters on the show have mentioned these threats and been aware of them uh, to a greater extent than I feel like they are in the books. So like last week, we had Tywin kind of dismissing Danny and her dragons, saying, well, dragons haven't conquered a city in thousands of years, so they're not a problem. Like This isn't something we need to be worried about, which is remarkably short-sighted for someone as canny as Tywin. Like, clearly, we we haven't even gotten to this point in the books yet, but, like, clearly that's going to be a mistake to assume that dragons are not going to factor in the strategy of Westerosi politics at any point in the near future. Like, that's just, like, not going to happen. And ditto, kind of, to some extent, with uh, what we saw with the Night's Watch and the Wall today, where they're like, well, the gate has held for thousands of years, so clearly we don't need to bar up the tunnel because it'll keep holding. But, like, we know that that, I mean, Jon Snow knows that that's not the case, that the giants are coming. And even if they hold out from the wildlings, you still have the White Walkers coming. Um, But people have this kind of entrenched idea of what works and what doesn't work, and they're not willing to adapt with the circumstances. So I was kind of tracking 
who is kind of paying attention to these icebergs looming and who isn't? Well, most climate scientists in Westeros, you know, say, you know, they're part of a conspiracy about this winter coming. I don't, I don't see any proof of it, honestly. <laughs> I mean, it is interesting that just by the nature of it being television, they have to make the big looming threats more apparent. I mean, they don't have to. They could have not done it. They could have not, you know. I think it's just an effort to tie the plot lines together a little more. Like, we, in order for Danny to seem relevant to the TV show, they need to have, at least in a small way, like, influencing over in Westeros. Yeah. I mean, I even venture to say that that's a problem with the book series, that he just takes too long to drive the main storyline <laughs> forward. I mean, it's still great. I still love it. But, you know, it is kind of a problem. <laughs> we, we, are, we are kind of waiting to get to the fireworks factory. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, okay. So we have one question on the Twitters, which I want to address. Um, it is from uh, Brian Lewis, Dromedary. And he asks, and this is some very bad news. This is probably the most dire situation that Westeros currently faces is what Dromedary wants to talk about. And it really affects Essos, too, and, and the free cities and the whole, the whole of the world of the Game of Thrones and the Song of Ice and Fire. Ha question for the panel. Have you considered using the bye week next week to recap and speculate on the season as a whole? That's right. What he's saying is that there is no Game of Thrones next week. There's none. It's Memorial Day. And as such, we do not we do not barbecue. We do not sew. We do not barbecue and watch Game of Thrones on the same day. It is against the rules. So we will have no Game of Thrones episode next week. We'll have a Game of Thrones episode in two weeks. So the question for the panel is, should we do a recap of the show not happening. Could we do a Mad Men recap? <laughs> are you guys are you guys really doing nothing for the holiday? Is that really like nothing's going on for you or anything? You know? Oh, oh you I mean do I not have plans? It. Are you are you it's calling nice us to, losers? You know. <laughs> No, 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 I'm not saying, you know, it's nice to work very hard for free on the internet because we have a lovely audience, but I'm just saying sometimes you uh you got to sometimes you got to throw the rabbit on the spit and turn it over the fire. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> well, I mean also keep in mind that, you know, Shane and I are here on the East Coast. Uh, and Matt and Ben are on the West Coast. So for us, we're recording these things at 9 p.m. Eastern, which is well past the end of most Memorial Day activities. But Ben and Matt are recording it at 6 p.m. Pacific, which is in that sweet spot of that sweet tangy barbecue sauce. Right. Uh, so maybe, uh, Shana, we'll talk. Maybe we'll do something Mad Men oriented next week to fill the gap. Uh, but I think we're going to take a week off from Game of Thrones rather than have kind of a macro mega Game of Thrones uh, hey, how's everything doing? Kind of conversation. Because I feel like I feel like that we've been moving chess pieces for for a little while. Satisfyingly, these haven't been bad episodes. But I want. I mean, you know, we've known for a while that like, or if you've read the books, you've known that that the mountain is going to fight uh, Oberyn Martell, right? And and also, uh, if you've read the books, you know what what episode nine is going to be. Episode nine being the traditionally big battle episode. So. Um, you know, I've been waiting for some I've been waiting for some action. You know, I don't have a lot. I don't have a lot to say about uh, uh, about identity and and uh, the climb and uh, all, you know, all these other things that we haven't said already on the recap. So I, I, I guess long story short, no. Well, <laughs> Mad Men, it is. <laughs> Because all those episodes are identity episodes. Every single freaking one is an identity episode. <laughs> who, who, uh, is Don, who is Don Draper? Who, who is Don Draper? This season, you'll learn who Don Draper is. This episode, you'll finally learn who Don Draper has become in the intervening time since the last time that we talked about who Don Draper is. Who is Don Draper? It's like, who is John Galt? It's a question that doesn't require an answer. Wait, that's not true. <laughs> it's a question where you close the book after you hear the question. No, um, that's different. That's different. No, I like Mad. I've liked the season of Mad Men. It's grown on me. I really like the episode uh, from Sunday night, uh, and that was pretty solid. So we'll talk about that next week. All right. So in closing, I mean, I think we've covered most of this episode. I think we've covered most of what's happening. I'm looking through the notes here. I'm seeing a note about Jorah being butt hurt. I think we covered that. Uh, we've talked about uh, Jamie. Probably was too. <laughs> Wait. Oh. <laughs> Oh, man. Um, not giving up on the gravy, the fork in the road. They can live in my new world or they can die in their old one, which is another, like, road not taken, right? 
like being burned by a dragon is nothing. It's nothing. It's not something or nothing. I don't know. It's kind of a bad, well, whatever. Um, but yeah, Arya's idea of death is nothing is very different from Daenerys's idea of like, you know, Miri Mesdura being like, I won't scream. And Daenerys is like, no, you're going to die screaming. That's how it's going to work. <laughs> right. Like, um, and, and so on and so forth. Um, the North is cold and far away and lawless is close and warm, uh, which was a really nice thing. Um, that was a great scene, by the way, the Bra- Bron and Tyrion together. That, that was a fun scene. Mm, yeah, definitely. Sort of, yeah, very, very, very sort of sentimental farewells between Tyrion and and his, you know, uh, hitherto his his protector and his servant, right? Like, because the pod scene was, you know, pod, aren't you going to turn on me and inform on me? For God's sake, what the hell are you doing? Uh, and uh, and this one was nice, also. It made it, it made me write in my notes, what, in my notes, what is love? Tis not hereafter. Present mirth hath present laughter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and one other cool moment is um, the, the episode is bookended uh, because at the very beginning, Tyrion talks to, uh, or Tyrion's plot in the episode is bookended because at the beginning he talks to Jamie and he, he stresses that you, you were the golden son. Right. He says that to him and nothing could happen. The golden son. He'd always love the golden son. Right. And then, of course, who comes along at the end of Tyrion's arc in this episode? But the golden son himself, Oberyn Martell, carrying the torch, the flame, carrying the flame of that golden sun into the darkest recesses of the earth. That's really right, funny, actually, because you could also see a book ended in a different way, because um, Oberyn tells Tyrion his story about how he wanted to see a monster and he didn't get to. And then at the beginning of the episode, right, I think it was right after the Jamie scene, you see the monster that Oberyn really is going to fight, which is the mountain, who is basically this giant of a man who's not even a man. Like, he doesn't have any personality whatsoever, except that like, he likes chopping bodies, which Cersei seemed happy with. So um, she's used to monsters. <laughs> monsters herself though so that that is true and she does have a way of getting what she wants um oh yeah and the last thing is i like uh, i like danny's bootleg dragonstone right where she's like she has the table she has the table <laughs> and then she has like the folded maps that are on top of the table whereas of course back in dragonstone her ancestral seat where stannis mcstannis was hanging out they have the table that actually is the map because they carved it right and it's like that's cooler than having to unfold your idiot's guide to marine and put it <laughs> on top of the thing um yeah and i guess the last symbol is uh the fire in the crown right when melisandre looks into the flames how there's like a golden crown around the the fire that's burning in the middle i just thought that was cool okay anything else guys any final words the night is dark and full of terrors pete that is true, and it's only beginning for you, but it's been here for a few hours for us. So we will sign off. Uh, please, if you like this, great, awesome. If you don't like it, tweet at us. Tell us what you would prefer, because maybe we'll do it, or maybe we'll engage in some sort of conversation, or maybe you just need to talk. If you ever thought you just need to talk to somebody, like, we'll do it. Talk to us on Twitter. Talk to us in our comment thread. Talk to us in our forums. You can talk about Hannibal in our forums. We have a very lively conversation about Hannibal that cannot see the light of day because it is too sexy and tortured in order to, to do so. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> what? What, what Shana? Join the forums. Cut your face <laughs> off. Eat your nose. Okay. <laughs> That's that it, you've you've sold me. Um, but yeah, if you're listening to us on the audio feed, please subscribe. If you like it, check out the main Overthinking It podcast. Uh, many of you probably already listened. Great. If you haven't checked it out, check it out. It's great. Uh, check out the TFT podcast, which is Rather and Sheely talking about uh, pop music and the legacy of teenage culture and rebellion music. And it's really interesting and it's a hard R and it's where Matt gets to confound everybody by being uh, incorrigible, which is awesome and I love that. Um, yeah, and of course, uh, and since I've plugged Shana's project and Matt's project, I should plug the U.S. Navy as being a great project. <laughs> no, no, no. Plug the case of the week quotient. I need people yes. to send me data. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so Ben is. We do cross. We do uh, crowdsourcing every once in a while. Right. And it's awesome when we do. There was a great crowdsourcing about Law and Order a bunch of years ago that was brilliant. And Ben is working on a cross uh, a crowdsourcing right now about whether the show that you love. Uh, does uh, a high or a low proportion of Monster of the Week episodes, right? That's the idea, Ben? Right, yeah. I said Case of the Week, but Mm. Monster of the Week, Plot of the Week, Client of the Week, whatever it is, just kind of something of the week. Yeah, so check out that story. Um, What's the title of the story, Ben? 
Case of the Week Quotient. Case of the Week Quotient. Check out the Case of the Week Quotient on Overthinking It. And uh, if you're watching something that you feel isn't being covered and you want that voice to be heard, you send us that data. You join the movement. And uh, there will be beautiful graphs. It's, you know, be, uh, <laughs> my God, they're full of stars uh, and pies and bars and lines and scatter plots. Uh, glorious indeed. All right. But uh, all of this stuff can be found on our home. And we hope uh, a place where you can come as a guest to put your feet up. And lay your maps out on the table, right? And eat some pie. Have some delicious pie. Yeah, I don't know, whatever. Okay, well, although I guess all that's left is the gravy here, which is the, without this, it wouldn't be an overthinking a podcast. Without this gravy, the podcast wouldn't be a podcast. The recap wouldn't be a recap. The broadcast wouldn't be a broadcast, which is please visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. Hot pie? Hot pie? Hot pie? Hot pie? Matt, hot pie? Hot pie? Hot pie? Hot pie? Would you like my Would you like my wolf bread?